Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hi, Tulika. Good to see you again. Hi, Jeremy. Nice to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, so I'm really excited because you're one of the few founders who are tackling decarbonization in Southeast Asia, which is a very, very rare thing to pursue in any around the world, let alone Southeast Asia. And so I'm just interested to profile your story. Thanks so much for the invite. Happy to talk about decarbonization till the cows come home, because I think when we're trying to solve that problem, we're really trying to solve something for our future generations that's very, very important. It's quite the imperative for the moment. How did this start? You've been working on energy for so long. How did your love or specialization in energy begin? Yeah, sure. Happy to talk about that. You know, energy has played a big role in my life right from the very beginning. So I'm Indian originally, and I grew up in the Middle East, actually, in an oil outpost called Kuwait. And very early on in 1990, the Gulf War happened, and that was all about energy being a geopolitical force that can be disruptive at times. And as a 10-year-old, my sister and I decamped to the, to the desert. We figured out later, obviously, we were in refugee camps and completely displaced from home life and what have you. I moved back to India at that time. So my father is very entrepreneurial, and it's very rarely that you get to see your family sort of start to pick up the pieces and rebuild something from scratch. Normally, you know, you're growing up in a family, things are stable. But very early on, we had sort of energy play a bit of a disruptive role in, in, in the growing up years. And two things happened at the same time. Because of this, we were displaced very early on. And I also got to see sort of family rebuilding life back from scratch, et cetera, et cetera. So that was like a bit of an early introduction to, you know, how energy can impact people and why it's, how it's a part of our life. And it's part of a bigger picture. So maybe that was the early fascination. And then once I finished, um, you know, once I was uh, qualified as an engineer, I, I was very keen to, to work outside of my home country and learn a little bit, you know, about the world outside India, really, at that point. And I uh, was lucky enough to get a foreign uh, posting with my first company that I joined. But uh, amazingly enough, I pushed really hard to be placed outside of India and landed up in Kazakhstan for a couple of years. And it was really amazing because it was the wild, wild west of energy exploration. And they were developing the world's second largest oil field outside of Saudi Arabia. And I was an engineer who got to be on that exploration journey as a, as a wireline engineer. I was working for a company called Schlumberger. Did that for a couple of years. Worked in Norway for another year on the more mature oil field production side. And something was becoming extremely clear. My fascination with the energy industry was growing and growing because the more you worked in it, the more you saw sort of the global landscape on which energy plays out. Oil prices rose, you know, we were flush with contracts, oil prices dived and suddenly projects were, you know, shutting down all over the place. So it was really interesting to get that sort of early introduction in my career to, you know, the how the energy business works. But what was also apparent to me after three years in the business was that I was missing some commercial skills as an engineer. There was like a technical pathway that was emerging in the energy business. But my interest in energy was beyond that. It was wider. I really wanted to understand, you know, how the commercial side worked, et cetera, et cetera. So I made a decision to go back to school, actually, and study. And it was while I was supporting myself as a broke student in London, 
that I was introduced by one of my professors to BP, and BP has their headquarters in London in St. James's Square. And I landed up uh, in the mid-2000s in an oil and gas company like BP, where, fascinatingly enough, they were just setting up their alternative energy business, which is what they were calling it at the time. So BP was making its first forays into renewable energy at the time. And it seems like a bit of a roundabout way to get into renewable energy via the oil and gas side, but that was my background. I had an oil and gas background. I was fascinated by the energy landscape, but having worked offshore on oil rigs for the last three years, it was also just a very natural gravitation towards something that was more sustainable. Because when you're actually on the rigs and you're working and you kind of just see how, what the environmental implications are, you have to believe that there is a more sustainable way for future generations to power their our economies. So that was without much of a conscious articulation, I guess, of this thought. I was naturally gravitating towards the clean energy side of things. So when I completed my master's, two things happened. So there was also an ongoing fascination with entrepreneurship and with energy at the same time. So during my master's, like, as I mentioned, my dad's an entrepreneur. He picked himself back up and rebuilt his business after we got, you know, brutally disrupted with the first Gulf War. I worked with a couple of startups during my master's. And one of them was a company called Sunray Renewable Energy. They were writing a business plan to go pitch institutional investors for a solar renewable energy play. So I helped those guys. There was something very interesting happening in the European renewable energy market at the time. And anyway, I went off to work at PP and we did a wind farms in India, JVs with, you know, turbine manufacturers in China, registered the first carbon credits from the Indian wind farms. And, you know, they were being uh, sold into the EU ETS, the emission trading, emissions trading scheme in, the, in Europe. So all very fascinating until Lehman went down and the global financial crisis hit. And uh, as many large companies tend to do, there was a gravitation back to core business the oil and gas business. And I just didn't believe uh, that my future lay in the, the dirty side of the business anymore. So, so from there on, and here we are, it's been clean energy all the way, starting with wind and solar and now in hydrogen. And I think you mentioned a second thread, which is about your entrepreneurship thread that started from your father. So tell us more about how your father inspired or motivated you about becoming a founder one day, because you mentioned him twice. Yeah, actually both my parents, my mom and my dad, both very type A personalities, immigrants who moved first from India to the Middle East to build a life and sort of find early success in that and then moved as refugees 10 years into that life, sort of unexpectedly facing a global war crisis and then picked up and rebuilt again and, and sorted that out. I've always seen my dad especially has always been get up and go, just do it. You know, that's his attitude. His attitude is that there's nothing to stop you, just do it. There is no such thing as failure. It's a learning experience. There's no such thing as a, a limit. Believe that you can do it and you can do it. And the other inspiration for my mom was actually, I'll mention it here, I'm a female founder. It was a big deal to go and be an engineer on an offshore oil and gas rig in my early 20s. And I did face some opposition from friends, family, wondering what, what it was I was going to be doing there. As we have in South Asia and Southeast Asia, we have close-knit families and you know, friend circles and lots of well-wishers. And, and I don't ever remember having seen that attitude from either of my parents. And in fact, my mom was my biggest champion. She was like, of course you must go and you know, try this if that's what you want to. So that was the motto that I grew up with. If you have to try something, just be your best self. If you want to try something, go ahead, try it. There's no such thing as failure. So they both inspired me and uh, I'd seen my dad create a business a couple of times from scratch and become quite successful at it. 
somewhere at the back of my mind, there was a bit of the dallying with the uh, startups, you know, even when I was completing my master's. But there were two, there was a bit of a dichotomy, right? Because the energy business is a, as I said, it's a geopolitical business. It's on a grand stage and it's very capital intensive. So my thought was, I need to plug some gaps here in terms of my own ability to lead a company like this. There needs to be some understanding of the basic fundamental drivers of the business, but also there needs to be, you need to understand, you know, how capital plays out in the business. You need to understand how development to growth to mature stage companies come about, etc. So spent like some time doing all that stuff, grounds up while I was at the oil and gas company, then at the BP's alternative energy business. And then when I had the opportunity to leave, I don't want to go back to my own gas roots, as I said. I joined a firm called Denham Capital. They're a spin-out of Harvard Endowment Fund. And they had a power and renewables team for, based out of London that was doing business all over Europe, Africa, Asia, Australia. And interestingly, they'd invested in the startup Sunway Renewable Energy that I mentioned that I'd helped write a business plan for. So it was one of those very early lucky things that happened. Sometimes you're just fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. But I got to sit alongside Sunray in a very hands-on sort of atmosphere and work with them as they built out their first solar farms in Europe. And then amazingly, within a couple of years, sell the company for four times money multiple to a solar manufacturer. So that was, I think, very fortunate because you sometimes can spend like quite a long time in your career trying to, you know, see those sorts of deals. But here there was a startup that I that I'd worked with alongside, and they'd grown and they'd, you know, made all those decisions about how they would grow from development stage to construction to operation, and then had that massive pipeline of projects, and then that was it. We exited them. Another really great experience was, uh, and it was quite entrepreneurial as well, was restructuring a company in South Africa that is today known as Wildfire Energy. Again, wind and solar developer, wildly successful, grew hugely. So I'm very proud of the role that I played at Denham in bringing both those companies to fruition. And so that was a little bit sort of working alongside startups, you know, learning the business, learning how that whole growth story happened. So then when I left Denham, I set up uh, my first startup, which was called East Ray Capital. It was originally set up out of London, and there is a chapter in Singapore as well. And that was an early foray into trying to figure out how I could be part of the energy business in a less capital-intensive way, right? So having like an investment advisory service connecting. India was picking up its renewable story in the early 2010s. And so the idea was to connect institutional pools of capital out of the West with uh, project developers in India. And so that was something that I was very proud to have worked with on with a friend of mine who's a lawyer as well. And we took it to a certain stage until an opportunity came, came knocking in a larger part of the renewables business. It's called a, a fund called Octopus Investments, was doing something very interesting in solar in London at the time. So it paused the, the startup story a little bit, let it run by itself in the background while I went to do some more work on solar assets for, for that company. So that was a little bit the running team of uh, entrepreneurship journey in London. In 2015, I relocated to Singapore. And Singapore is uh, really crucial now, I think, to why I'm doing what I'm doing in hydrogen. And that was really, Singapore is a very interesting spot within Asia Pacific and globally. It's a, it's a melting point. It's a conflux of so many and so many energy companies are headquartered out of here and doing business all over the region. And in 2015, when I moved here, I felt like it was really all just starting to pick up. All the Asian activity that we were seeing in renewables was really starting to pick up and Singapore very much a focal point of that activity. And I thought of it as a, as a bit of an epicenter out of which lots of interesting work was happening all the way in Australia and Southeast Asia. 
So I, I worked for a couple of companies first to get the lay of the land, build the network that I needed and, you know, really got to understand what the, I guess, the scene was, you know, and how it was all set up and how things were really working in this part of the world. And then in last year, I launched uh, Sun Green H2, which is the green hydrogen startup I'm working on with my very talented co-founder now. And that's the story of how we're trying to build the world's highest efficiency, low-cost electrolyzer for green hydrogen production. It's a Singapore story. You just threw in a bunch of keywords right there at the end. So <laughs> tell us what all those things mean in the context of energy. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. There's so much there, right? We have a world that is decarbonized as much as it can with wind and solar. And just like the rest of the world, Asia, including Singapore, Southeast Asia, and Asia Pacific, Japan, Korea, Australia, have seen all of that play out. I think we're the world and, and we are as much as part of it from here based out of the epicenter of Asia, if you like, from Singapore. We're as much as a, a part of that too. We can, we've gotten as far as we can. The world has decarbonized electricity as much as it can, realistically possible. But we're still on a pathway to climate change that is going to exceed two degrees Celsius, which has got catastrophic implications for. So there's catastrophic implications for, you know, what it means for the environment if we cross two degrees Celsius. So, so we've done a great job, I think, globally. The world has done a great job of getting electrification, you know, decarbonized as much as we can. We've electrified whatever we can. We've electric vehicles, you know, the Tesla story. Batteries have a role to play. But increasingly it became apparent that, you know, and, and this is a fact, you can't decarbonize everything just by electrifying it. So here is a crossroads at which we are at. And this equally applies here in Singapore and Southeast Asia as it does in the world. You can't decarbonize your industries, your transportation sector, and you can't store huge amounts of renewables, which is causing grid instability. At the moment, there are no solutions to decarbonize these parts of the world. So if we do have to achieve some kind of net zero scenario to which most global nations, including Singapore, have now committed, we need more solutions. It's really incredible. You know, the International Energy Agency predicts that all the technologies that are needed to get us to an actual net zero pathway, whatever we have today, a majority of that technology still needs to be developed. All these new technologies that are early TRL stages that need to be brought to fruition before we can have the solutions that we need in order to decarbonize completely. And so that's where hydrogen sort of comes in. And that's where, for me, I understood that hydrogen has two roles to play. You can use hydrogen in vehicles and, you know, it produces water vapor and it burns very cleanly. And so that's a very natural answer when you think about those vehicles which cannot be electrified. So you can electrify passenger vehicles, but you can't electrify trucks, for example, or ships or planes. But these are causing major carbon dioxide emissions. So in our climate change story, in our decarbonization story, we need a way to decarbonize these sectors. And hydrogen is, is a way to do that. Same thing goes with renewables, right? Because we, there's theoretically, there is no limit to how much wind and solar you can bring and, you know, electrify grids with. What is a constraint is the availability of resource. How much land do you have? How much water access do you have for offshore, for example? And then there's the infrastructure constraint, like how much can your grid take it? Hundreds of years of grid building have gone into the electricity networks that we have today. We cannot overnight in 10 years change these networks and this infrastructure. These are billions and trillions of dollars of investment that need to happen before we can get these pieces of infrastructure that took us 100 years to create, to be ready to accept and absorb all this huge amount of renewable energy that's coming on board. So what's the solution there? The solution is long-term storage of renewable energy. In fact, what wind and solar do is they don't provide base load power, right? So based on how intermittent they are and the peakiness 
of this energy source, the grids, the, the more volume of this energy you have coming on, the grids really struggle with this. So what you could do is take all this wind and solar, convert it to hydrogen, store it, and then eventually feed it back to the grid via fuel cell to take out the pickiness of all the renewables that we have. So large-scale intermittent renewables finally have a solution to the infrastructure problems they've been you know, accused of causing by virtue of taking them into, turning it into hydrogen. Okay, so some people are just going to be like, wow, that was a lot of jargon and big words. So why does it matter? I mean, okay, fine, it's getting a little bit warmer these days. I see it in the news that there's a bit of climate events, but you know they're far away, they're not here. Or if it's happening, it's happening in America or Africa. So why should someone in Southeast Asia care? I mean, no one's really saying anything has really happened. Any adverse weather events or climate events haven't really seemed to happen in Southeast Asia. So why should we care about this? Let's just continue being a middleman for the world's oil and gas. We've got a good thing going and then we can let the nerds continue working on clean energy wherever they are in the world. Whereas in Southeast Asia, let's continue with oil, we have gas, we have coal, and that's good enough for our economies and cheap electricity. So what's your point of view on that? Southeast Asia can't afford to really ignore this problem. There's two key reasons why. And the first one is our own health. We know that Southeast Asia is responsible for the fastest rise globally in carbon dioxide emissions in the last 10 years by virtue of the fact that this is the region that's growing fast. It's developing fast. This is where progress is coming really fast. This is where all our data centers are sprouting up. And what we're doing when we're fueling all of this with fossil fuels is we're creating a problem for ourselves. So airborne, like particulate matters, right? SOX, NOx, carbon dioxide emissions. So carbon dioxide causes global warming, but let's talk about SOX and NOx. The more vehicles we have on the crowded streets of our Southeast Asia nations, Singapore's a little bit an outlier in that, right? We have a bit more control. But having said that, in the region, the more dirty fossil fuel sources of energy you have, the more emissions you have, the more lung-related diseases and deaths you have, and these are all directly linked to air quality. I don't know if you remember, but when the Beijing Olympics had happened, I had the pleasure of visiting China right before then, and there was a yellow smog all over the city, right? And what it was, was it was as a result of all the emissions from the factories and the manufacturing that were on the outskirts of Beijing. Those were switched off during the Beijing Olympics. And as a result, the world was able to see what Beijing residents probably were able to breathe free, clean air for the first time in months. And if you closely study lung and respiratory diseases in these regions, they're probably growing as fast as carbon dioxide emissions are. So you and I, we all need to care about the environment and the air that we breathe because it's impacting us directly. And the second reason why Southeast Asia needs to care about this is rising sea levels. We're talking about land reclamation projects. We've done a bit of that already in Singapore. There's a certain extent to which, you know, you can reclaim land. After that, all nations are in the same hot water, if you like. And that's also why we need to care about the environment. If, if this generation doesn't figure out pathways for ourselves to develop and develop sustainably, Unfortunately, we're just leaving like, you know, we're pushing away catastrophic problems for our own future generations. And we'll still be here. We'll be here in Southeast Asia. Our kids will be here. And we're just leaving them a legacy of issues to solve. Let's be a generation of problem solvers instead. Let's not leave it for the next generation to figure it out, but it might be too late. Why not just push it for the next generation to figure it out? We got problems that from the previous generations gave us. So why don't we just push it off to the next generation? There's no reason to. Most reasons to push off problems for future generations to solve are because they're too costly or too expensive to solve ourselves now. 
But in most parts of the world, including, let's say, I'm from India originally, right? Renewable electricity, for example, is cheaper than fossil fuel-based electricity. So here we have now a compelling reason economically to do this as well. So why wouldn't we? There's just no economic reason to push this problem off in the future. And I really think that in Singapore, for example, we're already seeing that happen. We're seeing that there's a very proactive way to start thinking a little bit about carbon. There's a very proactive way in which to sort of start thinking about cutting our carbon dioxide emissions. We've just had the government release a hydrogen study that really talks about, you know, how we can start to use hydrogen increasingly in gas blending, in the power sector, in the transportation sector. If we don't place those sort of road markers or milestones for ourselves to achieve in the next, not today, but 10, 20, 30 years. At least let's leave them a blueprint with which they can figure out the problem. If we don't make those moves today, they're, they're, it may, there may be a point of you know turning backwards, it's just too late. And so I firmly believe that, amazingly enough, and it's really great to see that within Southeast Asia, there is a lot of commitment to laying down those markers and those milestones instead of leaving roadblocks for future generations to do it now. I think we're seeing that gathering momentum over the last five years. I think it's certainly picked up a pace. And I think in the next five to 10 years, we'll really see that Southeast Asia has figured out and is trying to decarbonize uh, just, not just to keep a pace with the rest of the world, but for its own sake. Yeah, but it feels so unfair. I mean, America got to burn so many years of free energy, and then now they're shoving down this mandate and peer pressure to do so. So why don't kind of we now just get to burn? They're still one of the highest per capita emitters of all kinds of gases uh, because of how rich they are as well. So don't we emerging markets have a responsibility for our people to get rich first, as rich as the Americans are, and then we can decarbonize later. And when that happens, we can use some more active carbon capture. Technology will have improved by then, and then there'll be some cheaper way to make it clean or reverse the damage. So why don't we just burn now and then solve it later? Because America got to do it, and Europe too as well. Yeah, I'd say that now is not the time to get even. Now is the time to get smart. So we've seen what the what the US and the European economies have done in terms of creating the carbon dioxide emissions of the world. Having said that, I think given that we're coming up the curve in development now, we have a beautiful opportunity to learn from all of that, take the best of the lessons that we've learned from outside of Southeast Asia and in this part of the world and apply them for our own benefit. And that's the that's the best part of it. If you think about the price that, for example, I worked in, in Europe for a while, if you think about the price that the European governments have paid in order to subsidize all the renewables that were subsequently rolled out, sort of start you know, making inroads into the carbon dioxide emissions, why create the problem, then create pools of capital to subsidize the solutions to the problem, and then eventually implement them and wait for a whole curve? One of the most amazing things that's happened in Asia, at the same time that the renewables and Estonia has played out across the globe, there wasn't a massive amount of feed-in tariffs that Asian governments came up with. They learned from the Western governments, I think, very fast, that subsidies will create the demand, the demand will then create the energies and the economies of scale that will bring down the cost of renewable wind and solar panels, for example, equipment, etc. And I think we saw it first in India, they immediately leapfrogged to auction-based tariffs. So we have, let's say the US and the Europe, which have really subsidized renewables and allowed there to become like an economy of wind and solar equipment suppliers, which have now really come down the cost curve. We already have access to this low-cost wind and solar power. Why would we need to shoot ourselves in the foot and subsidize all this? Why don't we just become smart and utilize all of this cheap 
renewable electricity that is available to us today for the benefit of our nations now. So in many ways, we're not actually sort of trying to get even with what happened in the West. We're trying, we should really try to be leapfrog the learning curve and give ourselves the benefit or the advantage of you know, what happened there and leapfrog that whole learning curve and implement those lower cost solutions for the better quality of lives in our citizens now. Don't get even, get smart. <laughs> Okay, so let's just say I accept all those things, right? I accept it's a problem, it's a chance for us to leapfrog, we might as well do it now, it's not too expensive. We'd rather be smart than to get even. Even today, it feels like, why should we do it? Because other people aren't really doing it. Look at America, they're like bipolar there, where you know, they're in and then they're out. And now they're maybe quasi in again, but nobody really knows if they actually get it in. I think Europe, obviously, is a little bit more, they're properly in. China's made a big in of commitment, but who knows? doesn't really feel like they're doing anything massive to execute against it. It's kind of like, why should I be the one to be the first? Why should Southeast Asia get started on this? No, look, I mean, I think so much of what is about relevance. It's not about why should Southeast Asia do something, right? Why are we trying to clean up? Why are we trying to clean up Singapore? Singapore's a major port destination. We see so much maritime business out of, you know, our red dot. The reason to clean up is to provide a solution for all the European and all the international cargoes that are coming through. There are international regulations now for desulfurizing, you know, bunker fuel, which is really the lowest quality and dirtiest fuel out there, right? Whose air is getting contaminated with those pollutants? So it's in our benefit to, first of all, clean up for ourselves. And secondly, we have to keep up with international regulations in order to be relevant in the world as it grows and moves forward into a decarbonized future. And many of the steps that we have to take are, are really about hanging on and making sure we're at the forefront, not just lagging behind and trying to catch up, but at the forefront of clean solutions that allow people to do business in the framework of international regulations that have come to be. Singapore is a signatory, as are many other nations. This year, we will see COP26 come out of the United Kingdom. I don't know if people will get a carbon price out of it, but carbon taxes at borders are a real emerging reality. I think there is no solution left. If you are an economy that is carbon intensive in terms of your manufacturing practices, at some point we are headed down the road of getting penalized for that. At some point we're going to have to start paying those carbon taxes at the border, which will make us less competitive than our neighbors and other decarbonized nations. So for all those reasons as well, it's worth trying to keep a pace and trying to get ahead of you know, what needs to be done in order to be relevant to the future of the world. Okay, so let's just say I heard to this podcast and I've been compelled, you know, I decided that I want to get smart, not even. I think that it's the future and so, so forth. So I'm compelled as an individual Southeast Asia citizen, but no one around me seems to care. I feel like a crazy person because the only people who care about this are all foreigners and hippies or super liberals. So I care. What should I do? How could I help? Yeah, absolutely. So I beg to digress a little bit. I think actually if we look around ourselves in Singapore, there is an amazing epicenter of activity taking place. If you want to look at solar, please look at the companies like, you know, Sunseaport out here doing amazing work. And they're not the only ones. There are other solar developers. There are opportunities to get involved with associations like the Singapore Energy Association, the Sustainable Energy Association of Singapore. If you want to dabble and not immediately, you know, sort of pursue career opportunities in that, there is a vibrant diaspora of startups that are trying to make, you know, technological advances a reality that are also based out of Singapore and that are, by the way, supported a lot by the Singapore government, like SG Innovate, 
They run a bunch of, let's say, you and I met an entrepreneur first. There's a few other incubators like that out there. So depending on the age and the stage of the interest that any citizen has in the region, I would challenge them to not walk around and take a look at the emerging amount of opportunities to become involved in officially or unofficially. I think you'd be hard-pressed not to stumble across a sustainable option for you to get involved and make a difference. Clean up your beaches. Help collect waste. Let's talk about wherever you are. I mean, I think there's a way to convert waste to energy. There's a way to improve your sort of carbon dioxide emissions on a personal basis. Support a rainforest project. Try and plant more trees. Whatever way you want to sort of negate your carbon impact of your existence, there are ways to do it. Like bike, walk. Every single bit is making a difference. Andre ran an amazing app challenge in China sometime back where it was just a gaming platform through which, you know, people were able to game away, you know, enjoy themselves on the app. Then also the credits that they collected were going towards planting more trees and decarbonizing. Those are very simple ways in which you can look for opportunities to, to improve our carbon impact. And so dip a toe. Dip a toe, that's the first way to get involved. And then you'll be surprised to see how many opportunities there are leading on from that. I think it's really about opening ourselves to what's actually happening in the landscape in and around us. You'll be surprised to see that within Singapore itself, for example, there is a pretty strong movement now and a lot of interesting work being done all the way from solar to batteries to the government's just announced electric vehicles coming on board soon to hydrogen. Hydrogen is the future. I firmly believe that. It's the reason why my startup is here, to make a difference and to bring low-cost green hydrogen. There's lots of ways in which you can use that. And so seek the opportunity to decarbonize your own footprint, you'll be amazed to see how you can start to impact efforts to decarbonize the nation's footprint and regionally and globally as well. <laughs> For so many folks, obviously, that are listening to this, it's scary, right? Because so much of the economy and so much of the existing energy infrastructure is not unrenewable, even though you say it's easy to switch to. So many oil and gas jobs in Singapore, it's a huge sector, it's a employer and a good employer for so many families and their dependents. So it feels like a big ask, right? You know, as we do the transition, like people are going to lose their jobs, their livelihoods will be impacted. That feels like the, the perception that would be if we move towards a more renewable energy. It's a win-lose, uh, that dynamic here, a substitution. Uh, no, I don't think so, actually. I think what it is, is that we need to just become more aware of the way that we can sort of decarbonize individually. And I don't think there's any major massive changes coming that would cause economic shocks in the economy. I think one thing that we are aware of that the Singaporean government does is really make sure that there is a transition plan for everything. And it's like in the order of 10, 20, 30, 40 decades. So I don't think there's any immediate risk of that. I think there is a risk of perhaps misrepresenting the scale at which change is happening. But I also think that the, the next generation, the current generations need to become aware of the emerging opportunities and choosing pathways now that put them on that sort of clean energy. Choose those pathways. The oil and gas opportunities are here already to the extent that shipping is around. Shipping may become decarbonized in the future. That doesn't take away shipping jobs. We don't have an oil and gas industry that's about to go away. We have carbon capture and sequestration that's coming as an additional add-on. Let's place ourselves on those pathways. Let's try and figure out what are the decarbonization opportunities in the, in, in the industries that are underpinning our economy today and make ourselves future relevant by being involved in those. I think that's really the opportunity that's emerging as opposed to any change coming on, you know, the way things have been done today. I don't think that's going away. I think there's just more and more opportunities coming around 
how we decarbonize all those sectors that are underpinning the economy today. So if anything, more opportunities as a result of trying to walk that decarbonization challenge as opposed to less. And so starting to turn a chapter here, could you share with us a time when you have been brave? Sure. So 12 months ago, coming straight out of lockdown in the midst of a global pandemic, my co-founder Saeed and I launched Sun Green H2, our startup. And what we're doing with the startup is we're trying to build the world's lowest cost electrolyzer, which is a machine that makes green hydrogen. I think launching a business a startup in the midst of a pandemic with, at the time, there weren't vaccinations inside. We didn't really know what the end was. With travel disrupted, no meetings happening in person. It was probably one of the bravest decisions that I've had to make personally because in many ways, I think maybe that tells you that you're ready for your entrepreneurship journey is when you see opportunity instead of roadblocks, when you see that Right, if there's a pandemic and people aren't in their offices, that means everyone's available on Zoom. I think that's when you can really start to think of really the blue sky thinking and the get up and go attitude, I think, that you need. Because trying to build a company from scratch is not easy to begin with. And to start with it in a pandemic, often you can sort of question your moves to think perhaps it'll be more closed doors than open ones. But I think we chose to see it as a way that to, to really go out and set up a global business that is relevant from... Southeast Asia to, let's say, our immediate neighbors, right, Australia, Japan, Korea, but also in Europe and, you know, have a bit of vision around the regime change in, in the U.S. to come and to say that that's great because everybody's at the end of Zoom. You could reach out anywhere to anyone globally. And so we really didn't think of it as physical doors closed. We really saw it, saw it as a lot of digitally open doors worldwide to be knocked on to get up and get a business off the ground. I'd say that's the greatest thing that we did. What was it like? Because you and I at the time were both in the Entrepreneur First cohort and you went on to found a startup, whereas I went to join the VC because they pushed me. <laughs> so very different paths there in the middle of the pandemic. So I made the same calculus. I was just curious, what were the people around you saying when they heard that you wanted to found a startup in the middle of a pandemic? Were they supportive? Were they concerned? What was it like? What was your husband thinking? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, amazingly enough, I have a very supportive husband and uh, family. And as I said, there's a bit of a trend around my uh, family to kind of, you know, never see uh, roadblocks, always to see opportunities. And my family was very quick to get behind me to say opportunities. But I'm also lucky. I'm also lucky in that I have a professional career where I was able to build up some savings in order to fuel myself through the pandemic. That's something that it's not just about picking up and being spontaneous. It's also about very meticulous planning and having that sort of buffer that allows you and gives you some time in which to experiment and try and launch businesses and, you know, see if you can be successful with it or not. So there was a bit of planning that went into it. I'd always had a, a bug for the entrepreneurship side. As I said, I'd been working around startups to begin with, then launched my own startup early on in London. And this time around, when I came across my co-founder's technology, so I'm the commercial half of the team, and my co-founder is really building the technology. From everything that I've known and experienced in the, in the renewable energy business, to me, this was a solution, a compelling solution to a problem. Despite uh, any naysaying that I perhaps might have heard, once I came across what this, our technology could do and what it could mean in terms of the next solutions to be available in decarbonization, so green hydrogen, I couldn't walk away from it. I tried to tell myself that perhaps launching a hardware business is really quite hard. You know, you question yourself. 
But I couldn't walk away from the idea to begin with because to me it was a solution to a massive problem. That was one. And then secondly, I immediately went and I spoke to all the industry players that I'd had the good fortune to work with in the past, all the way from Europe to Asia, to say, what do you think of this idea? You know, is this solving the problem? I really tested the market and the hypothesis. And I started out with some of the really big players. And increasingly what we heard from potential customers was, how soon can you solve this problem? This is really a problem. So what I did was to test the hypothesis really early on. And it was really clear that we were onto a, a solution but you know, of course, the solution is not born overnight. You have a technology, you have an idea, and then you pivot many times to try and find that right product market fit. So then followed a journey of six months with EF where increasingly I was hearing on the one side from customers about two things, that it was solving a problem, but that there needed to be a basic form factor to the product. Couldn't be too small, it couldn't be too decentralized a solution, but just about decentralized enough that it was solving a CapEx issue, right? Because when you have large equipment or large pieces of kit, the larger you build them, the more of a barrier it is for people to adopt it, right? Because you need those millions of CapEx costs to, to, to meet from the budget. So we realized that the more decentralized we could build our solution, the more we were opening up doors for, let's say, factories, individual units, communities, hospitals, resorts, what have you, including utilities for the larger scale renewable energy producers to be able to access this. And so that's how we sort of pivoted, pivoted, you know, developed, developed to get the product to a fit. So, so that was my journey during the year. It was early on about trying to figure out if there was a problem worth solving. Very quickly it became about, of course this problem is worth solving, now let's try to find the right product market fit. But that was the majority of my experience at EF. And uh, ever since we've launched, then we've been really trying to get a product ready to put into practice. So that's us today. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Julika. I'd like to paraphrase the three big themes that got out of this conversation. The first is thank you so much for sharing about your own professional journey, about how you fell in love with clean energy. I thought that was a fascinating discussion, not just about you as a child being a refugee, but also being inspired by your father to be entrepreneurial. And then you also discovering what was it like to venture into energy and become a founder yourself in clean energy. So this is such a nice, beautiful slide into it. The second one is I enjoyed voicing uh, <laughs> the the cynic of the climate and having you kind of share. And I love the key phrases that you, know, you shared about, you know, get smart, not get even. You shared about you know, the opportunity that's a leapfrog that is actually much more rational to use clean energy today, if, especially for Southeast Asia. And that developed markets, although they have benefited from clean energy, also had to go through a lot of teething problems that we get to bypass. So I think that was just a nice reminder about what the bull or the positive case for what climate change, but also clean energy and what every individual person can do. And Tadi, you know, thank you so much for also sharing your personal founder journey as well about what it's like to create a hardware-centric deep tech company in the middle of a pandemic. And uh, I think that's such an amazing and inspiring story for so many people out there. Thanks so much, Jeremy, for having me. It was an absolute pleasure to discuss with you playing the different devil's advocate on clean energy. Really, it's been an enjoyable uh, last hour of discussion with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. <laughs>